We just finished last week the end of chapter 1, which was brutal, very difficult. Paul is making his case for the sinfulness of man. Paul is making his case for how uh, sinful we are and how we fall short. And what you saw at the end of chapter 1 was the open sinfulness of the Gentiles, right? That there was envy, there was, there was strife, there was murder, there was just an open, encouraged sinfulness for the Gentiles. And Paul is articulating his case for the bad news in the beginning of, the, of this letter that originally is not broken up into chapters, right, and verses. He just wrote this letter. We've done that later on. And so this is a, a continuing thought through chapter 1 as he talks about the open sinfulness of the Gentiles. And I think what you see here is in the beginning of chapter 2, you see a therefore, which is a strange way to break up a chapter, because therefore means it's a conclusion from a thought prior to it. So looking into chapter 1, we see, therefore, you are without excuse. And here Paul turns his argument from the open sinfulness of the Gentiles in the encouraged sin of the Greek, and he turns his argument to the religious law-keeping, you see my air quotes, Jewish person. This is who he's talking to. So Paul is now continuing his case for the bad news, the state that we are in as humans, where we fall in relationship to God and His righteousness. And so if you really felt good at the end of last week and you were hoping this week you were maybe going to hear something that was going to make you feel better, I'm sorry, we are still in chapter 2. <laughs> But my prayer is with me, please hear me, with me as I've been spending a week feeling this. My prayer is that you feel this this morning. Let yourself feel this this morning. Romans 3.21 is coming, okay? Let yourself feel the weight of this reality this morning. Because as Paul turns his argument towards the religious person, I, I suspect that sitting in this room, sitting in the church, there is relevant admonitions from the Word of God from this letter Paul wrote to you and to me. And it's important that we feel it. It's important that we feel the weight of it. That we look at ourselves and recognize where we stand. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would help us to hear from your word this morning. Help us to respond to it. Help it. Help us to be changed by it, that, that the revealed word of God would be illuminated by your spirit to our hearts and that it would be transforming. It would have a transformative power in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Paul turns his argument and attention from the open sin of the Gentiles to the secret sin of the judgmental religious person in chapter 2. And it's almost as if you can hear at the end of chapter 1 the religious person in chapter 2 saying, absolutely, Paul, I agree with you, right? I hate, I, I, I hate that stuff too at the end of chapter 1, pointing the finger and saying, we agree. You know, what she does is terrible. I totally agree with it. What he does is terrible. I totally agree with it. And Paul turns his eyes and his argument to that person. And he says, 
you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges for passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The end of chapter 1. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul turns his argument towards not the openly sinful, but the hypocrite. Paul turns his eye in his argument towards the hypocrite. And I think today for us, there's some things we need to look at in regards to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and religion seem sometimes to go hand in hand, do they not? Many times this critique, and we'll see it at the end of this chapter, is, is levied against the church. Oh, it's full of hypocrites. I heard it the other day, sharing the gospel with a friend of mine the other day. And, and the, the, the hang up in his mind that the church is full of hypocrites, what he's seen. But Paul's turning his argument towards the hypocrite. And you got to ask yourself, I need to ask myself this morning, where do hypocrisy and our faith, hypocrisy and religion coincide? How do I not just look to the other person who it's so easy to criticize, but how do I this morning listen to the words of Scripture and introspectively look at myself, examine myself in this? And I think there's an important question to ask. If you have sin in your life, if I have sin in my life, recurring, unrepentant sin, that we are content to allow it to remain as long as nobody else knows about it, I think we've answered that question about hypocrisy and religion. Let me say that again. If we have sin in our life, that we secretly allow it to remain, that we're not warring against, and we're content to have an unrepentant heart towards it as long as nobody else knows about it, I think we've answered the question in our own lives of where hypocrisy and religion intersect. So easy. Listen, I get it. And please hear me, I'm preaching to myself as I feel the weight of this passage with you this morning. Hypocrisy is easier than being truthful, is it not? It's easier to care more about how we look towards others and our religious face and, and the display of how good things are for me as opposed to facing the reality of what's really going on in our hearts and, and turning from it, being repentant and allowing God to turn us. And so we see here the number one reason that hypocrisy is pointless, the number one reason that hypocrisy is a problem we see it in verse 1, is, 
is that we're without excuse. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. This person has, has no excuse as they look to others to criticize and to talk about how bad they are, but yet does not look into their own heart and recognize their hypocrisy. Verse 1 is powerful. And, and some of you might ask, who is the you? Who's the you in chapter 2? And, and we see that the you is singular, so it's not you all. It's not the group. Paul is talking to a you. And scholars would call this, uh, it's a diatribe. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of writing that is argumentative. It's a persuasive argument that he's making. And what you would do in this type of writing is you would create a, a false you. You would create a, a person that you're going to argue with so you can make your argument. So obviously the you is a singular person, but it's a, it's a fake person Paul's making up so he can build his argument about hypocrisy and articulate the judgment of God. And so this you is clearly a religious Jewish person that he's speaking to, that he's addressing issues in their heart. And believe me, as we look at this together, we're going to see how these issues relate to us as well. So Paul's making his argument to this you. You are without excuse. Every one of you judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here we see that those religious hypocrisy uh, people, they would condemn sin but still do it. And what we see in verse 2 is that God, you're without excuse because God will still judge you. We see in verse 3 that, that you deceive yourselves when you do this. When you criticize others, yet have an unrepentant heart towards sin in your own life. You're deceiving yourself in verse 3. And, and in verse 4 we see this idea that you are misusing, misappropriating the kindness, the patience, and the forbearance of God. Man, this speaks right to the heart of us today. In your life, as a Christian, relying on Christ for your salvation, what, what, what do we do sometimes as, as we come and we are so concerned how we look? We are so concerned how we're perceived. We're so concerned that everything on the outside looks better than what's really going on on the inside. And as long as it's hidden, as long as no one knows about it, then somehow I'm okay with that. What, what, and what Paul is addressing here is this is completely upside down priorities. Because there is coming a day when you and I will not be judged by an imperfect friend or colleague or family member. But we will be judged by the God of the universe who knows every moment of every day, every motive, every second, everything you have ever done. He is not deceived. He is not distracted by you saying, oh, look what so-and-so does, but hide your own sin. He is not that distracted. Would God be that deceived? Would God be that simple? The Lamb of God who is our judge is the one who knows every second of every day of your life and my life. Why are we so concerned with what others think? Why are we so concerned with how the outside looks? God's kindness, His forbearance, and His patience 
We say to ourselves, well, I can keep this sin hidden and continue in unrepentant sin while I condemn and judge others as long as no one knows about it and as long as I look okay because nothing's happened to me yet. What we see in Scripture is God's patience in His judgment, God's kindness in His forbearance isn't for you to continue in unrepentant sin, but it is for us to wake up and recognize that I have not been judged according to my deeds because I would fall, but God's kindness and His patience and His forbearance should lead me to a place where I fall to my face in repentance and say, God, turn me and I'll be turned. God's kindness in our life should lead us to repentance. Yet, what He says is you continue Look at verse 4. You presume the riches, the kindness, and the forbearance, and the patience, not knowing his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your, listen, hard and impenitent, unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself. What do we see here? We see someone under the law who's unrepentant, and is not repenting because of the kindness of God, but yet is taking advantage of the forbearance and the patience and the kindness of God, and is continuing in secret sin while they openly and outwardly judge others. And every time they look at someone else and say, look what so-and-so did, isn't that terrible? They're declaring to God that they know it's wrong. And they're storing up wrath for themselves. How bad is so-and-so? How evil is so-and-so? You can see the Pharisee that Jesus would always approach or always rebuked in his ministry. Whitewashed tombs on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. I look great on the outside. Criticize the way the world is today and the way so-and-so is today. Declaring aloud that I recognize the law of God and that it's wrong. While storing up wrath for myself. Because nothing has changed on the inside. There is no repentance. There is a hard heart that is refusing to be turned. Because what? Nothing's happened yet and no one knows. Nobody knows what's really going on inside. Paul's warning here should be heeded, should it not? Are we really here in this place this morning at Renovation Church to just look good to each other? Just make everybody around us believe everything's great? Or are we coming into this place on the Lord's Day to worship Him and to look at His Word and recognize our sin and repent together, confess our sins to one another? To have a heart that cares more about what God thinks than what others perceive about us. So we're without excuse. When you judge, you prove that you know God's not distracted by our hypocrisy. His kindness and His patience should drive us to repent. But some of us continue to stay in our sins, saying nothing's happened yet. God's delay is kindness. Let me ask you this. 
do your keen perceptions of others ever drive you to examine yourself? I'm very keen at perceiving the error of another. Does it ever drive me to take a hard look at myself to see what's going on in my heart? You know, you never know what someone else is going through. Right? Remember an old story, uh, old like 19th century preacher uh, and I wish I remember his name, Truett, I think it is, last name Truett, heard an old recording of him preaching, told the story of two men on a train. The one man was holding a baby who was crying and screaming and crying and couldn't be consoled. And the older man looked at him and said, will you give the baby to his mother in his anger? And the young man looked at the old man and said, I can't because his mother's coffin is on the train as we're going to bury her. And the older man, feeling the weight of his judgment on someone else without knowing what was going on, agreed then to hold the baby so that the younger man could go get some rest and sole the baby himself. You never know what's going on in someone's life. We are often quick to perceive the faults of others. And Paul warns us. Paul warns us. You better take a look at what's going on in our own heart. In your own heart. You're without excuse. Number two. We see here. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 10. Hypocrisy is pointless. Hypocrisy is pointless. Why? There's no point in it. Why are we so concerned with looking good to others? Let's read verses 6 through 10. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality. He will give immortality, not immorality, I apologize. He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. So we see in verse 6 through 10, opening up in verse 6, he will render to each according to his works. God's going to judge according to deeds. Good doers, glory, evil doers, death. And, and, and what he's doing is he's communicating to the Jewish people at this time, I think it's important to understand the context, who had received the law and believed that it was their ethnicity and the fact that God had chosen them as a people to reveal His law to them, they believed that in and of itself was going to save them. That they had the law and they had received it. And their ethnicity was going to be the thing that was going to bring them salvation. And so Paul highlights, after he highlighted the Gentiles' lostness in chapter 1, in chapter 2 he's highlighting, listen, first the Jew and then the Gentile. You, you also, who have received the law, if you're doing good or doing evil, you fall short. Now soon we're going to get to chapter 3, and we're going to recognize that no one does good. 
that no one is capable of being this good doer, that everyone falls short of the glory of God, but now he's building his argument that your hypocrisy is pointless. And I think we need to hear that this morning. Hypocrisy is pointless. If God is judging us, he is a perfect judge. He's omniscient. He is omnipresent. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows every detail of your life. And so if he's judging according to our works, we're going to begin to realize in chapter 3 that no one could stand. But, but why would you be hypocritical knowing inside yourself you're lost, you're fallen, you're still sinful? What is the point of the perception of looking good to others and calling others out on their sin and, and being like that pharisaical whitewashed tomb? It's pointless because the perfect judge knows. Maybe your family members don't. Maybe your colleagues know. Maybe your, your church family doesn't know what's going on. But God knows everything. Your hypocrisy is pointless. Your hypocrisy will not save you. You can't go to, the, to that day where we all stand before the perfect judge on that day having looked good and thinking that's going to matter. It doesn't matter. Yet we put a lot of effort into it, don't we? We have a lot of stress about it. We really care what other people think in regards to our own lives and our own sin. Hypocrisy is futile. The Jew first and then the Gentile. Paul is highlighting that God, as we see next in verse 11, isn't partial. He doesn't care. He's not a respecter of person. God shows no partiality. So, some of you are saying, all right, I'm sufficiently depressed. Does, does verse 6 say debunk grace? Is verse, verse 6 communicating that, that somehow we have to live up to something and that our works and our righteousness will save us? And the reality is no. What Paul is saying is that that your hypocrisy is futile because you can't, you're not going to be judged by how you look. You're going to be judged by what you do. And so listen, the, the way you act, the things that you do are going to cause your judgment because God is a perfect judge. And what Paul is leading us to in this argument is our need for Christ. What Paul is leading us to is he builds this argument about the futility of our hypocrisy and then soon the futility of our good works. What he's going to begin to describe to us in chapter 3 is that the law was fulfilled, out, or, or righteousness was fulfilled outside of the law because of Christ. So he's building in us the, the argument that our hypocrisy and our, our whitewashedness and our desire to look good is meaningless, it's futile. Verse 6 is not debunking grace, it's beginning to demonstrate for us the need for it. John Stott said it this way, if I can find it. Although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. The reason for this is not hard to find. It is at the day of judgment will be a public occasion. Its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce it and vindicate it. 
So justification, our justification is by faith. But judgment is according to works. If you're going to live according to works, you're going to have to live up to what your works were. If you are going to condemn others in hypocrisy, you are going to have to live up to and stand on your own two feet about, uh, of what you were able to accomplish in your works. And Paul is saying it's futile. Your hypocrisy is futile and your works, as he says in another letter, are filthy rags. God's judgment shows us the futility of worrying about how we appear. Because he knows and he's the perfect judge. Amen? You know, this should drive us to cut the religious act. Should it not? This should drive us to recognize the patience and the forbearance and the kindness of God and openly repent. His kindness should lead us to repentance. Cut the over-spiritualized talk. Cut the religious act. Cut the, the fluffy, fake stuff. And let's, as the family of God, as, as members, covenant members of the body of Christ, be confessional, be open to, and, and honest in our need for Christ and our desperate sin so that we can see the grace of God come and meet us in our sinfulness and in our desperation before it's too late. Fakeness, hypocrisy will lead to judgment, repentance, and humility, and reliance leads to His grace. Amen? Yet we, folks, we do. As much as hypocrisy existed in Paul's day, as he's turning his eye towards the Jewish religious person, it exists today in the body of Christ. And some of us would be content for the rest of our days, sitting in a pew and looking good, and hoping everybody else doesn't see what's really going on until the last day rather than come to a place of repentance and, and letting our hard hearts be softened and actually addressing the reality of our own sin. And this is who Paul's speaking to today. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is pointless because God does not show favoritism. Number three. Hypocrisy is pointless because God doesn't show favoritism. We see it in verse 11. Let's read 11 through 15. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature sometimes do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Here we see Paul continuing his argument to the Jew that God's not partial. You think that you're saved because you have the law? Gentiles sometimes do the law. If you have the law and you know better, you'll be judged under it. If you're looking to others and saying, you don't have what we have, 
we have the law, then you have no excuse. You know the law, and you're going to be judged by the fact that you fall short of it, that you can't accomplish it. Even the Gentiles sometimes do it. And God, and Paul's argument to the Jews is, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile, if you're Greek, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. He is, God does, shows no partiality. And, and so we bring that to today, as we sit in church today. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that you have that you think saves you? What is it that you have that you think saves you? God is not partial. He's not partial to the pretty, to the rich, to the upward mobile, to the socioeconomic high, higher people. He's not partial to anybody. What is it that you think you have that saves you? As we look inward to our own hearts, we recognize regardless of what we have accomplished, regardless of what we've achieved, regardless of who we are or where we're from or who our parents are, we need Jesus. This is what this is driving towards. We need a Savior because we fall short. And God's not partial. Amen? This is drastically different sometimes than how we behave, is it not? As we see sometimes the accusing eye of the Christian, we have to ask ourselves, especially if that ever becomes us, what, what are we recognizing as our status before God? And what is it that changes our status before God? Because sometimes in our, in our accusation of another, it, it perceives that somehow we've accomplished something that they haven't. It's not recognizing the fact that we are all in the same boat in need of the grace of God. Has that not been the accusation, sometimes rightfully so, of the church in our day? Those who would point a finger in the face of another as opposed to recognizing the fact that they are in the same boat of the other apart from the grace of God? And maybe the need would be for repentance and humility to stand next to someone and point towards Christ instead of pointing in their face. Why is it that everybody knows so well what we're against. We have to really adjust our perspective of who we are in relationship with God according to His Word. God shows no partiality. This shows no partiality is, is, is a word that says look at face. That's really what it means literally. And it's this looking at the appearance of somebody whether it would be ethnicity in this day, a Jewish person or, or a rich person or a pretty person or upwardly more mobile person, what he's saying is God does not look at status. God does not judge according to status. He's not partial. Jesus addressed this in Luke 18. If you have a Bible, I don't think I told the guys at the soundboard about this, so if you have a Bible or you got an app on your phone, you can take a look at Luke 18. But what this is, in verse 9, is it's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. <coughs> and Jesus, addressing the same issue, says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
So the, those that trusted in themselves as being righteous and treated others with contempt, Jesus tells this story to them in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. The Pharisee clearly being the person that they would have respected. The Pharisee clearly being the person that was the righteous one, the holy one. The tax collector being the person that they would have abhorred. The person that rips them off. The person that is corrupt and not honest and not honorable. And so we have this, this diametrically opposed picture of a Pharisee who is a man of God, a man of the law, and a tax collector who is probably of the most hated groups of people because they collected taxes for Rome and would rip them off and had no honor and were betrayers of the Jewish people. Jesus paints this picture when talking to people who think they were self-righteous, think they were righteous and were condemning others and holding contempt towards others. He tells this story. So the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he prays like this, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat at his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a picture. God, I thank you I'm not like this other guy. I don't do these things. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. You see the picture of the Pharisee. And then you see the picture of the hated tax collector who won't even look up. Whose eyes are down and he's beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. What is the difference between the two men? The tax collector recognizes the depths of his own sin. And the Pharisee does not. He does not see. He thinks he's righteous in and of himself. Paul's addressing this head on. How do we overcome hypocrisy? How do we overcome this tendency? Because it's easier than the truth. Right? I mean, hypocrisy is tempting. It's easier to just look good and to make sure other people see that we look good than it is to address the truth, the risk of embarrassment, the risk of others knowing, the risk of not being perceived by others as being good. How do we overcome this hypocrisy that is so much easier than repentance and truth? How do we do it? We're going to begin to see as we walk through Romans, and we don't get to it in this chapter, and it would be, as Mike said last week, almost abusive to not recognize where the argument is going, what we're going to recognize soon is that none of us do good, but in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, but God fulfilled righteousness outside of the law as Christ becomes 
our propitiation as Christ satisfies the wrath of God and the justice required for sin. Christ satisfies it on our behalf. He becomes the substitute for us. So in humility as we repent and as we rely on Christ, Jesus, for our salvation and for our righteousness, we can be saved and overcome this hypocrisy. Amen? That's where we're going. That's where this is leading. But we first have to feel the weight of our own sin. We first have to recognize, even those in Christ sitting here today, if you are a Christian or you have waved your, your salute to the gospel in some, in some way or another, there's more to it than that. There's some introspection that's required. There's some life change that is an evidence of the fact that something has actually happened in your heart. I think it's important that we look at that today. <coughs> Number three, or four, sorry. Hypocrisy is pointless because God will judge secrets by Christ Jesus. Look at verses 16 through 23. Verses 16 through 23. Paul continues his argument with another conclusion in verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, listen to these rhetorical questions. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? I like rhetorical questions. So here Paul continues his argument to the religious Jew, and I know I'm going long, but I'm doing all of chapter 2, alright, so bear with me. <clears throat> I love these rhetorical questions. You who teach the law, instruct the law, rely on the law, do you not teach yourself? Teach about stealing, do you steal, teach about adultery, do you commit adultery? Listen, hypocrisy will not be sufficient on that day, so let's stop pretending. That's the point Paul's starting to make here. You who teach, what do you do? Look at your own life. Hypocrisy will not be sufficient because the perfect Lamb of God is our judge. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is in your repentance, in your reliance on Christ, are you continuing to sit in remaining unrepentant sin as long as no one else knows about it, and you're not warring against it. Please hear this. This is the question for the Christian. Because the heart that has relied on Christ for His righteousness, and the grace of God has been, has been given, and the gift of faith to believe has been given, should be discontent with unrepentant sin. If you are, are, are here this morning and you're saying, this judgment of God seems unrelenting. It seems like I can't get out from under this. This seems so oppressive. Where is the hope? 
And if the answer to this question in your mind this morning is, I feel the weight of my sin. I recognize my unrepentant sin and it bothers me. And I long to address it. Then we know the gift of God and the gift of faith and the work of Christ is at work in your heart. Amen? The one that God has saved and given the gift of faith to and and is regenerating is asking that question and is bothered by unrepentant sin. But listen, hear me. If you are sitting here and you just have knowledge, maybe you are the coolest dude in the Bible study who can say all the great things, who read the theology book, who can educate everybody else on what everything means, but you have sin in your heart that you are okay with as long as no one else knows, you better check what's going on in your life. Hear the word of the Lord today, because if His grace is at work in your life, and His regenerating gift is at work in your life, there should be a a kindness in that that leads you to repentance. And if you don't care about your sin, and you're completely fine with it, just as long as everybody else thinks you look cool, you better check. Closely. Get to a place where you repent. Say, God, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I care what you think. I need your grace and your forgiveness in my life. And war against the sin in your life. Battle it. This is not required or possible that any of us are perfect. But it is required that we're born again. It's a change, the gift of God has happened in our hearts and in our lives. I'm almost done. Lastly, verses 24 through 29. Hypocrisy blasphemes God. Hypocrisy blasphemes God. Look at this. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the perception of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but he keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No one is is circumcision outwardly and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So here's what we see here. is He's accusing the Gentiles of blaspheming God because of their hypocrisy. And I had to ask myself this question. This was a very hard question for me this morning at about 6.30 as I was looking closely at this before I spoke to you. And I'm just being honest. Is there anyone I know that misunderstands God because of me? Is there anybody I know that has looked at my life a professing Christian and thought, what a hypocrite? That reality drives me to repentance. They blaspheme God because of you. We, as the body of Christ, as the fruit of the Spirit, 
love, patience, kindness, self-control. As that begins to come out of us because of what God's doing inside of us, we demonstrate to the world who God is in the way that we treat each other and love each other. Amen? So we have to ask ourselves that question. Last thing. How do we kill it? How do we kill hypocrisy? Look at the last verse. The way we kill hypocrisy is this. Verse 29. B. 29B. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man. Praise is from God. John Kelvin said this. Hypocrisy is that which seems something great before men, but is nothing in God's eyes. We have to ask ourselves the question, what motivates us? The praise of man or the praise of God? Do, what things bring about praise from men? Oh, look at him. Isn't he great? Isn't he awesome? Or what things bring about praise from God? The God who knows everything already. The God who we saw in verse 16 and following sees the secrets of your heart. The real judge who's not imperfect but knows every minute of every hour of every day of your life. Every motive you've ever had. What brings about His praise? And we're going to see folks as we begin to walk through Romans together. It is the heart that responds to the kindness of God and says, I repent. God, you see everything anyway. You know the depths of my heart. You know the depths of my sin. I confess it to you. Turn me and I'll be turned. Change me and I will change. I need you. Our reliance on Christ and His finished sufficient work is what kills hypocrisy in our life. Because nobody experiences the grace of God, that free gift, after recognizing the depth of their own sin and walks away from that experience and says, I get to do whatever I want anyway. If you and I get to a place where we recognize how utterly sinful we are and we see the God of the universe get off His throne and serve us and love us and forgive us, in the cross of Jesus Christ, the only response to that grace is, God, take my life, forgive me, and change me. Amen? That's where he's calling us to, reliance on him. Hypocrisy is futile. Hypocrisy and looking good will not save us. Amen? Everybody okay? We're getting to chapter 3. Amen? We're getting to chapter 3. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we, we come this morning, hopefully, God, we, we come with hearts allowing ourselves to hear your word and to be bothered by our own sin. God, we pray that we would be convicted. We pray that your spirit your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and that we would continue to be bothered 
by our own recurring unrepentant sin. And we, we pray that your kindness and your love, your forbearance, your patience would lead us to repentance. That we would not respond to your patience with hardness of heart. Saying as the hypocrite would say that nothing's happened to me so far. I guess I'll continue in my sin as long as no one sees it. Help us to not be afraid of what others would think. But to be gravely concerned with what you think. And to respond with our great need. Standing in this fact today. That you have met it. You have met our need. You have fixed our sin problem. You are sufficient. You have allowed the justice and the wrath of God to not be poured out on us, but to be poured out on Christ so that we don't have to experience it. God, we come to that today not taking it for granted, but relying on it and saying, because of it, change us. Because of it, work in our lives. That others would see your grace, knowing our works don't save us, that you've saved us. And our works are just worship, gratefulness to a God that is that loving and that kind. Do that in our hearts this morning. That we wouldn't be the hypocrite who is unconcerned with the reality of our heart. But that because of your kindness and your love and your graciousness, we would have great concern. And ask you to change us and repent of our sin. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen.